Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my RBP colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hi, Barney. Hi, Jasper. Good morning, Hi, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Great pleasure to be here with you. One of our themes this week is Washington, D.C. And that's partly because Jasper, with our colleague Paul, is heading for Washington, D.C. this week. Aren't yes, you? indeed. Chocolate City to. ALA, the American Librarians Association Annual Conference. It doesn't get any kind of more rock and roll than that. Absolutely <laughs> not. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yes. So you're going really to hawk our wares. Yes, quite. In Capital City. Yeah. Good luck. It should be fun. I've never yes, been. Don't so come I'm... back empty hands. <laughs> 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 oh, we decided, I think, Mark, yeah. with that, because they were going to Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., that we'd think of some Washington, D.C. music yep. that would kind of fit in with this. And it didn't take long for you to go, go, go! <laughs> <laughs> go, go, go! Go, 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 go! go. Yes. Yes, um, yes, go, go. So we've got three pieces about the go-go scene, the kind of go-go funk dance scene that emerged in D.C. Yep. In the early 80s. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing is, it had been going for a long time before it emerged. Yep. After punk, the English music press specifically became obsessed about scenes, like cities where something was happening, whether it's Manchester or Liverpool or whatever. And Richard Grable was one of the first, and Simon Witter rapidly after him, New Musical Express, discovered this pre-existing scene in in Washington, D.C. And for a while, they posited this idea that it could compete head-to-head with hip-hop, which, in retrospect, was... Always going to be a dead loss because Gogo was essentially reactionary music. It was old school funk. It was very much live, large band live dance music. Very much restricted to DC and Maryland, and sort of mm-hmm. some of it is absolutely fabulous. But you know, a little goes a long way because ultimately it does start sounding kind of the same. And when you're two hours into a trouble funk set and they don't have a break between tunes, they basically move seamlessly from one all with the same go-go groove, which is a sort of slightly six-eight-ish sort of skipping feel funk groove. LT, kick But having said that, I absolutely adore Great Space. One of the pieces you mentioned that talks about Angel Dust, that was the recreational drug of choice on the go-go scene. Do you think Angel Dust made it easier to just listen to that group going on for hours now? Well, hours? it's one of the few drugs I've never taken, Barney. I can't actually kind of with all honesty say... We must get you some. <laughs> 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 yeah, research. You know, uh, for research purposes. But, but anyway, it's, it's, it's a really fascinating and closed scene. Mm. It's still going now. Go-go is still it? going. It's never gone away. Huh. It's no longer the big bands. It's often much more electronic and it's like sure. small bands, but it's still about a live Washington, D.C. ghetto dance scene. scene. So we you can't know. use the headline, Go, Go, Going, Gone. No, because it hasn't. You know, it hasn't. You'll find online extensive, like, radio stations which are dedicated to Go, Go, all kinds of stuff like that. The other thing about Go, Go is that even though it never broke out of Washington, D.C. in any sort of significant way, 
it did end up having a lot of effect on like swing beat producers and so on and so forth. Some of that, that, yeah. Some of that go go grooves. I remember once reading when Beyonce was Destiny's Child talking about one of their tracks saying, We got a go go groove on this. Mm. Yeah. And this is years after the fact, and Beyonce's referring to a go go groove. So it had definitely influential on, yeah. on that front. That's really interesting. I mean, I feel rather the same way that a little goes a long way for me. I did really like the first Trouble Funk album. Yeah. I certainly was reading about it in Enemy. I mean, as you say, Enemy were very quick onto this. Stuart Cosgrove had quite a lot to do with it. And Ireland then got in on the album. Yeah. Yeah, they, well, they made this movie, which was a fiasco by all accounts. And came out very late, yeah. too late really to do what it was intended yeah. to do, which, which was, was capitalise on the Right, really, yeah. really sort yeah. of disseminate um, the scene around If the any world. of you are fans of the writer George Pelicanus, who I'm a huge fan of, who wrote a lot of episodes of The Wire and a whole series of books, Go Go features really heavily in them. They're all set in Washington, D.C. One of the main characters actually runs a record store in D.C. and they go to Go Go shows... You know, oh. all of this kind of stuff. And it's re- it's really nice to read it, put it into its sort of context in, in, in a fictionalisation. Mm. My favourite tune of the lot is Bustin' Loose, Chuck Brown and Soul Search, yes. which is just yeah, a it? monstrously great tune. It's in my record bag now. I don't, not that I play DJing sort of malarkey anymore, but it's just a great record. It's a really, really fabulous one. I feel like Bustin' Loose. So the three pieces we've got are, you mentioned Richard Grable, and and this was the piece I remember, it was the real introduction to Mm -hmm. many of us uh, from 84, and it's a really just good piece of kind of reportage and explanation as to exactly what Gogo is. He does also talk about Angel Dust and says that the city's mental health facilities have been stretched to breaking point Mm -hmm. by the side effects. There's no doubt PCP, as as it was yeah. clinically known, had you know a devastating effect on many people. It did turn many people into into psychotic monsters, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. Horrible stuff, really. But having not had any personal experience of being turned into a psychotic mm. monster by myself, really, <laughs> as I say, that's yet, like to comment yet. any further. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he is. And then Simon Wood from 1986, the sort of tail end of the thing. He's saying, well, you know, everyone's. Everyone's saying Gogo's dead, and it isn't. Actually, it kind of was. The last piece is a lovely piece that Don Snowden, who was an LA-based writer, wrote for us. When Chuck Brown, the godfather of the whole scene, died in 2012, yep. I think. Yep. And he writes about seeing Chuck Brown the Soul Searchers. It was one of only two times in my life that I experienced the feeling that the band didn't just come on stage and play their set. They came out and plugged in and played music that was already there, only you could hear it now because they were playing what was flowing through the air. Right. And he explains that Brown had said that Gogo got its name simply because the rhythm just goes on and on. Yeah. And there's also a nice little story about two white punk boys driving to Washington, pulling over when a trouble funk track came on the radio and they were just so floored by Ian Mackay of Minor Threat and Henry Rollins later of of Black Flag. So it did cross over and I was interested to hear what you say about the the influence on Swing Beat. It hadn't actually, I must confess, occurred to me. I I can hear it. I mean, the the one thing is what we said earlier about it being regarded as a possible competitor to hip-hop. You know, hip-hop was the future. I mean, 83, 84, 85, hip-hop was just exploding out. Mm. Run DMC had just had their first big hits a year or so before... You know, it was always going to win that particular battle. Yeah. It was in a very weird kind of the way this English journalist obsession with discovering something. You know? It seems kind of strange to me to position it even as a battle between yeah. hip hop and go. I mean, mm. to me, maybe this is just a retrospective thing, yeah. but it feels like Go Go in a way is a form of or is hip hop 
with a certain kind of beat, basically. I mean, not directly, but there's spoken word rapping that goes on, on it, and it has a lot of similarities. Yeah, I, I'd, with, I'd say that the major difference is that Go-Go was a band-driven yeah, music. Yeah, that's a fair point, you know, for sure. And hip-hop was a turntable-driven music. Yeah. And everything that followed from that, like use of sampling, Sample, sample yeah, that, yeah. In, in, a way, the turntablism. in a way, you're not, you're not entirely wrong, I think, to suggest that Go-Go was kind of funk in the era of hip-hop. Yeah. It had that sort of element. Yeah. And there were some great records. Yeah. And, and also there, were, there was some cross-pollination between mm. the two forms. Yeah, there, yeah. There, were, there were hip-hop artists who collaborated with them. I think Experience Unlimited played on a maybe a Curtis Blow track. I, I, no, that's right. Things also, like that happened. Also, a lot of Go-Go was sampled and used in yeah. various hip-hop Not things. surprising. Anyway, it's great stuff. It's great stuff. Thinking of a master plan Cause ain't nothing but sweat inside my hand So I dig into my pocket all my money spent So I could deep up still coming up for Lent So I... We're actually then going to kind of roll the tape back just a few years to a very different kind of dance yes. music with this week's audio, Mark. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is the wonderful Anita Ward, who I'm sure many of our listeners will know for... She's a classic one-hit wonder. She had a song called Ring My Bell, which was a huge kind of late popular disco hit it was just it came out 79 yeah which is just when Kinski yeah, Park Thailand of disco and, and so on it's a charming podcast because A she sounds like a, just a delightful woman you know who's been through this experience of being a one hit wonder artist who then went back slogged around the Chitlin circuit pretty much gave up and then has kind of eased her way back into performing partly in sort of the nostalgia industry let's listen to the first clip this is her talking about her own response to Ring My Bell she didn't like it very much disco wasn't exactly your thing from what I understand so what was your (laughs) thinking when you did it um first of all I just did what I was told Mm mm-hmm is no and any artist and you no know, when you first starting out that's what you do mostly is yeah, somebody do whatever you. you're told and uh, unless of course you own the company yeah and you you know so on and so forth so um, but no I didn't like it I didn't like the song I thought it was a silly song because mm-hmm. I'm more um, my personality. I'm more serious. Have a little more gravity to you know, what you do? Right, because even if I tell a joke, it's probably dry. <laughs> you know, no, but seriously. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, yeah. I'm just more, you know, I would have liked to have done a song such as um, I Will Always Love You. Like, who wouldn't want yeah, to yeah, have yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a ballad? The Dolly I liked Parton ballads. And, and Whitney Houston uh-huh. song. I liked ballads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So that's, I guess, the way, if I'm going to be a star, I wish it was me having done a ballad. Yeah. But you see, some of that was because I didn't understand the business. Right. Okay? Right. But I, being so young, yeah. I thought it was cute, but I just thought it was too cute. Too you cute. Know? Mm-hmm. I, I said, mm, I don't know. But then, when uh, my manager and others said, well, you know, we wanted to put out something. If you're a brand new artist, mm-hmm. they've never seen or heard of you. Right. You want to put something out there that's going to get their attention, catchy, yeah. like a, you know, they're going to want to sing it. Yeah. You know, it's not difficult. Yeah. Uh, so that's what you, that's, that's like the hook line. The right. hook line was amazing.
I find it fascinating. It shows how little agency this artist, and particularly female artists, had in their careers. Um, There's an interesting bit where she talks about how she was only told afterwards that it would actually been written for somebody else. That's right. And how she was confused at why she'd even been yeah. told that, sort of because it was just made her feel kind of a bit and small. And she a bit. wanted to sing ballads. In fact, how she mentions she wanted, she would love to sing like Whitney Houston type ballads, yeah. you know. Mm. And she was really uncomfortable with this very poppy sort of dance tune. With, with, with some kind of innuendo well, just there. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. But this very kind of little girlish voice yeah. that she uses. I mean, I think it's a fabulous record. I've always absolutely adored it. And there can't great. be many people on earth who don't know. If you say Ring My Bell, yeah. everybody's heard that And it's record. got that it's giant iconic, record. iconic sort of... Yes, yeah, <laughs> the, 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 the syndrome. In fact, at one point, Tom Graves is the interview. Says, "You know, right now, somewhere in the world, that record is being played." Yeah. Um, what's really nice is that due to various like, a series of accidents, she discovered that a she hadn't been paid when she should have been paid, and that she had the contracts to sort of prove this. And also, organisations were getting going who were helping artists collect their royalties. That uh, Malaco Records had put out a, a, a re- it, it had gone onto a movie soundtrack, and she, her husband said, "Why aren't you being paid for this?" Mm. And so she started making inquiries. And as lawyer came on board, did some pro bono work. Next thing you knew, she, she way years after the fact, she that's starts great. getting she starts getting yeah, that's paid. That's really good. Yeah. So she can afford to eat in the restaurant where they're talking. It <laughs> starts off, it's lovely, and they, they spend really about ten minutes talking actually. about food, don't they? Because well, Tom's, Tom's working on a cookery book. That, that's right. Yeah. Uh, or a book about food, some yeah. kind of book about food, and she's eating. She talks about. The beans. She's eating compliments. <laughs> she also the, the guy the right the way uses at length about her grandmother's lemon cake. Yeah, yeah. which made yes. me want to eat some lemon. Yeah. I have to say, since hearing it, I'm craving lemon you want cake. What recipe? Have, don't you? Has, you have to yeah. buy Tom's book if maybe it's in there. But it's a lovely conversation it, it, between it really two nice southerners. I could listen to southerners talk. Yeah, the cows come yeah. home and. It's just a lot. She's so charming and just so. And there's no bitterness just, there. There's no, no sort of, you know. No. You know. I mean, for a start, she was a bright, interesting woman. She'd yes. gone to college. She had worked as a teacher. This is not some sort of desperate scrabbling. I need this to do. To, to. We'll listen later at the end of the podcast of how taken by surprise she was by what a hit it was that she was working as a teacher. Yeah, uh, uh, I think her husband said, you know, yeah. you, you, know, you, you do that because you never know what's going to happen with this. That's right. Again. And next, you know, she's got to go and do a TV show. She's got to go and do Wolfman Jack's show yeah. in California. Yeah. And, and she goes, but I'm teaching tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she has to go to Memphis to buy a frock. So yes. All that sort of stuff. It, it was so instant. It was kind yeah. of literally, yeah. her manager calls her up and says, it's your record. record's gone gold. Yes. Um, but I've got to teach tomorrow, uh, and, they, and it went. Yeah. I think went to number one, that, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it did. No, they, they talk about that some length. It may be one of the few Memphis records to actually go to number one properly. And it's an incredibly sexy record, actually. <laughs> I remember steady on. Barry. I know that I, I associate it with a particular memory of, sort of watching this girl dance, <laughs> and, I, and just it, I just loved the uh, record. Frederick Knight wrote it and produced. Yeah, it. well, and again, she had run-ins with Frederick Knight. Yeah. You know, it was the usual thing of like she had no say. In her career and what to do, no. and interesting that her management was taken over by a big management company when she had the hit. Mm. 
But when the hit stopped coming, which was almost immediately, the big management company lost interest entirely. She'd been better off staying, but her original manager was dying. Mm. It was so kind of a lot of things kind of collected. To kind of yeah, she talks about the, the chitterling circuit. <laughs> you know, what we call the chitlin circuit. <laughs> the chitterling. She pronounces it properly. Oh, it, 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 it's it's I mean, in some ways, Mark, I, I, an interview with a one-hit wonder... It's, it's really quite interesting. It's very interesting. And in a way, you really are only talking about one piece of music. I mean, she made a number of albums yeah. and she sung a lot of very different sorts of mm-hmm. songs, ballads, clearly what she yeah. wanted to do. She'd, she'd, been a, she'd grown up in the church singing gospel. I thought that was interesting, the yeah. way she talked about being a gospel singer first and foremost, her parents, the yeah. classic classic story, her parents saying, no, you can't go and make a record. Yeah, yeah. She was, even before the whole Ring My Bell thing, she was kind of scouted She's by She's hanging around at Arden Studios. And, met me, so, and uh, I hadn't realised she'd been... No, she probably was doing backing vocals. May well have been, uh, uh, I don't know. But she wasn't allowed to go and make her yeah. own record initially, and mm. so she... But actually, Barney, what you're saying is absolutely really interesting, because it's, she's a one-hit wonder whose hit is so huge mm. over decades mm. that you can... T- Listen to her talk about this one song, mm. and it's fascinating. It is actually, you know, I, I, it, it, it is. It's, it's, it's really something because it's such an extraordinary yeah. experience to have. You know, to, to have one yeah. record that was gigantic, yeah, I mean, and then and then really not much else after that. And then she had this car crash, yes. really major car crash, and she has had and continues to have no sense of smell. Really? Um, yeah, she says that in, in the interview. She says. That one of the byproducts is car crash. She can't. And Tom says, "Well, can't you, what about tasting food?" She says, "Well, it has an effect on that, you know, Gosh. which of course it, it does." Anyway, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have we have I think a couple of other Tom Graves audio interviews. I know the one with Barry Manilow, but, <laughs> but interestingly, one we added not that long ago Mark, was the one with Millie, yeah. Millie Small, my boy Lollipop. Yeah, that's right. Again, a one-hit wonder. Yes, and he mentions it during the. As it turns out, Anise has never heard of never my heard. boy Lollipop, no. but it reminded me of that conversation where you really are talking about this extraordinary impact of, yeah. of, of one record. Yeah, yeah. But it's 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 really the, charming. I would say that the Millie's living about sort of quarter of a mile from where we're sitting right now. Now Millie was, wasn't she? she? Is. That's right. And she still is. She's still there. She's just still up the right. road. Get her in for the podcast. <laughs> yes. We actually got her address on that interview, but we, I decided to kind of cut that out of the broadcast. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> Sensible man. Okay, so what next? Well, I think we are going to change direction very radically here. Um, Another because RBP podcast radical right turn. <laughs> radical right turn or left turn. Or left uh, turn. Five years ago, almost About to the face. day, um, we, we lost Felix Dennis, the legendary, notorious Felix Dennis, who was one of the three main guys in the Oz trial, the trial of Oz magazine, on uh, actually on conspiracy charges, as, as yes. I was reminded by the piece that we've included by him. Felix was an extraordinary character. And funny enough, when we were getting Rock's Back Pages off the ground, yeah. Matt Snow and I went to see Felix right. in his Covent Garden lair, <laughs> trying to get some money out of him. At that point, he was probably worth five hundred million pounds, and we, we couldn't get but we he... couldn't get a single dime out of him. Well, that's because it's too busy spending it on crack, wasn't it? Well, time? no, he wasn't actually. Crack was behind him, but he did say, "You can use my stuff on Roxback Pages." That was as generous as he was prepared Thanks, to be. But Felix, at that point, was was a sort of publishing magnet. Mm-hmm. He had started this empire. Extraordinary. I mean, really brilliant, doing smart com- guy. Doing com- 
kung fu magazines well, and stuff, wasn't just, it? Just any anything you could do a magazine about. Any craze. Computers. I mean, he was very early on in yep. the kind of how to use iMacs and all that kind of uh, stuff. Or even before that, Sinclair. You know, yeah. that, that sort of... But he goes back to the yep. sort of dawn of underground music journalism. Because yep. Oz, apart from anything else, was featured music. It was covering the yep. counterculture. Yep. You read Oz. So we've got his review of the very first Led Zeppelin album. Yep. Which apparently was that what world exclusive the first review of that album. Oh, what Wikipedia says about, about, about this. Ah. Apparently that was, that, this that is was the, the first, first right. published review well, that, of Led Zeppelin. That Led makes Zeppelin. it all the more startling that he, that he says very boldly, from from the word go, very occasionally a long playing record is released that defies immediate classification or description simply because it's so obviously a turning point in rock music that only time proves capable of shifting it into eventual perspective. And he writes rather well about. Yeah. I mean, I think he was. I, um, I, I think he squandered his talent. Well, I, I mean, I, well, 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 first of all, he wasn't. I mean, his job at Oz wasn't editorial. He no. was sales guy essentially. Really? Yeah. Uh, and that was the reason why he got a shorter sentence at the Oz trial than than Richard Neville and yeah. the other guy. The other guy. Yeah. Because the judge looked on him as sort of contempt as basically just the office boy. You know, you you weren't responsible for this disgusting, salacious stuff that Mr. Neville was thrusting down our kids' throats, you know. And so Felix was underestimated, has always spent a lot of his life being underestimated huh. by people. Huh. You know, he was regarded as the office, kind of the office junior as... He was the one who went on to make an absolute fortune. Richard yeah. Neville did some quite interesting writing, but yeah. basically went back to Australia. And the other guy whose name went The guy we're renaming. Is that memorable? I, I read School Kids This Year of Oz when it came out. My brother was a big Oz reader. And of course, you know, at the age of like, I don't know what I was, 13 or something like that, is just fantastic stuff, you know, with, you know, filthy cartoons of Rupert Bear shagging one of Robert Crumb's sort of bucks and wenches. <laughs> And all of this sort of stuff. And, and Charlie right. Murray, whose who's very first writing was in school, because I, I believe he wrote about shagging to Led Zeppelin, no, no less. It was all going on. It was all going on. And I was actually fascinated. And that trial... And so um, the, the, the trial was for the publication of those kinds of salacious yeah, comics, that, right? That, 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 issue, exact, that exact issue, the school kids issue, was what it was about. My school at the time, we were all riveted by this. It was a major, major story. I mean, Barney, you're saying he, that he talks about how he got um, John Mortimer and so on and so forth. Yeah, so there's this piece from 2009, one of his most successful magazines, The Week, which is still going, which is a digest of yeah. Global Digest of the Week's news. And it's just a reminiscence about the trial in the summer of 71 and how they couldn't get anyone to represent them. Time was running out. Mm -hmm. And then John Mortimer just sort of took, took, it took his fancy. Yeah. And he thought, I'm going to represent these guys. And, and apparently he was just brilliant. Uh, of course, the they, they lost the first trial. They, yes. they, they were convicted. They had their hair cut off at Brixton, yep. I seem to remember. Absolutely. At the time, was just a major, the pigs sticking it to our yep. people, you know. Yeah. Jar Jar Gar was determined to send them down yep. for a long, long stretch. Yep. I mean, there were echoes of, you know, Mick and Keith and the whole, yep. you know, to break a butterfly upon a wheel, you know, the Stones trial, all of this stuff. I mean, it was the established establishment was trying to get the counterculture mm -hmm. yeah. and in great part because of John Mortimer's efforts 
to discredit the the fact that they were being charged under a, a law that had lain dormant for over a hundred years. Wow. Yeah, and they 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 did do a little bit of jail time because they had sent these sort of you know prohibited materials through the post, ostensibly to yeah. to people, children, really. Right. So they, they they did a little bit of time in in Wandsworth and Wormwood Scrubs, yeah. but there was such a, an outcry that they came out pretty quickly after that. Thank God. Yeah. So that's an interesting piece by him um, there's also a profile of Felix by Sean O'Hagan from 2013 which was just less than a year before Felix died because yeah. he was diagnosed with cancer and the other piece that, that I selected is an interesting piece from 71 in Ink magazine yeah. tell me just quickly what Ink magazine well, it, it was a it, sort of it was a, was, spin-off it was a spin-off of Oz which yeah. was an attempt to sort of capture the sort of the underground tabloid market right. Oz was a magazine very highly coloured very very decorated yes. most unreadable at times <laughs> Uh, Ink was attempting to do something slightly more sober with more more politics in it, more yes. long-form articles of that sort of description. Yes. It didn't last all that long, I don't seem to remember, dear okay. old Ink, but it was a valiant try. Well, so this piece, I'm guessing, must have been written not long after the trial. And so the issue date, 2nd November 1971, it's really apropos John Lennon's Imagine album. And it's, and it's an attempt to kind of explain where John Lennon sits within the sort of countercultural frame mm-hmm. as a, as a result of, you know, breaking up the, them breaking up the Beatles. And there's some interesting stuff in there, actually. I mean, he says, he says, who stands, Felix writes, who stands now against this loud mouthed braggart of a walrus? And he lists the various people who don't stand against that. And in the end, he goes, one man stands against him. His name is John Lennon. It's himself. And there's a very interesting sentence here. This slowly emerging, uncompromising, and at times painfully embarrassing dialogue between Lennon, the working class hero, and Lennon, the apple-rich superstar, mm-hmm. represents to many observers a nauseating and repetitive exercise in self-delusion and hypocrisy. Yeah. Well, you well, that's, know. That's, 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 yeah. that's an argument you could still have with a number of people going back and forth. Sure. I, I mean, it's good writing. It is good writing. He's a very bright man. You know, and, and the thing is, but he never took himself seriously as a writer. No. You know, he always had either fish to fry, you know, or crack to smoke or whatever it was. How long? He did a, he had a long stretch this was, as a very rich man of basically hookers and cocaine, Well, didn't yeah, he? so, I mean, in Sean's profile... <laughs> sorry, um, sorry he's going to learn a tone yeah, again. But no, it's great. So this is 2013, you know, Felix is a self-confessed dissolute who heads the multi-million pound Dennis publishing empire. Sean asks, well, how did you, you know, establish this empire when, when you were sort of essentially living on the crack pipe? And Felix goes, yes, I built a Nasdaq company turning over 2.5 million a year while on crack cocaine. How, I ask incredulously. Easy, I never slept for five years. <laughs> and he had, a, he had a really interesting last few years, didn't he? Because yeah. he was planting all these trees yeah. everywhere. And he became a poet. And he, was, he used to... Terrible tor- poet. Terrible oh. poet. Terrible oh, my poet. God. But, but he didn't think to read he was poet. He thought he was all that really matters. <laughs> he thought he was great. And he'd do these tours. And he'd get people in to listen to these awful poems by <laughs> offering them really rather good wine. You'd get a glass of quite good red wine because he had I a never huge wine collection. I could have dealt with the wine collection. Were, were you not, were, did you not get the newsletter, <laughs> the email? I mean, he would have, he would have been a shoe in there. But, yeah. So that's what he was doing. He wrote, he wrote poems. And yeah, one tour was called Did I Mention the Free Wine? And <laughs> people just 
just clearly not been keen sense of what his audience wanted, both when it came to building a magazine empire and when it came to yeah. to his poetry. He was a very yeah. shrewd guy. Yeah. I mean, you know, he did have a very high opinion of himself. But you sort of forgave it because actually he was he was an immensely entertaining kind of bon vivant. Yeah, yeah. So this is marking the five-year anniversary of Felix Dennis's passing. Who is missed? Who is missed? As a mad character. Even if he didn't invest in Rock's Back Page. And even if his perks is bloody awful. (laughs) (laughs) He could have been a really great rock. <laughs> Mark, tell us about the library highlights. Well, book. I mean, I, I go straight to her in 1967. In his own words, but interviewed by Anne Moses, New Musical Express, as Mike Nesmith, then of the Monkees. And he's clearly decided to position himself as interesting by being a miserable sod. Ah, yes, the tried and true the tactic tri- of it's, it's worked for many. <laughs> and this is great. He says, high school was the most noticeable drag. High school kids are such a drag. Not all high school kids, but my high school kids. Boo-hoo. And then Lady John says, I never dated much. I couldn't get a date. I'd call up and say, oh, would you like to go out? And they'd say, no, I don't like you. He's <laughs> <laughs> the original Morrissey, isn't he? he? He absolutely. And the thing is, he talks about how his poverty-stricken upbringing, which I'm sure was true up to a point. He skates over the fact his mother inv- invented what became known as liquid paper, yeah. Tipex. Yeah, And created a multi-million pound company. She was working as a secretary and she invented Tipex. Mm. And so, in fact, by this point, Nesmith was rolling in family cash. He never really had to work, no. Mike Nesmith. Um, even I mean, though Tipex obviously doesn't mean an awful no, lot. I mean, he was days. one of the pioneers of video, music video stuff. And he's made a lot of really kind of fairly indifferent records, you know, as a sort of solo artist. I like, quite like the early stuff, yeah. you know. I like some of his contributions to the Monkees, more experimental yeah. albums. And, and I like he, some of the country rock and stuff. He, and he works with Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, he did sure. stuff with them and so on. Interesting character, but... His relentless miserableism does get you down. And sort of, and sort of superciliousness, which he shares with, with sort of people like Frank Zappa, yeah, just yeah. like lauding his intelligence yeah. over lesser mortals, yeah. which is a slightly, I've, slightly distasteful. Tedious, really. I've read, a, in my job at Rock's Back Pages, I've read a number of interviews. Is that who you work for? I'm afraid so, yeah. <laughs> Jesus, that explains why you've been hanging around for <laughs> <laughs> I've read a lot of interviews with Nesmith, and he just comes over as actually, has to be not a very nice person. Not someone I'd like to spend any time with. Moving swiftly on, very interesting interview with Reverend Gary Davis by Carl Dallas in Melody Maker in 71. This is a year before Gary Davis died. And he's living in New York and he talks about what a struggle it is for a man of his age. He said, you know, he keeps having guitar stolen. He keeps mm-hmm. having his flat cleaned out, you know. He's, he's a vulnerable guy. He's blind, remember. You know, he says, anything that happens in New York, don't get surprised. You can't make no friends with nobody in New York, you know. You'd think someone would have said, Reverend Gary, New York, maybe not the most sensible place for a sort of street yeah, but, blues guy, well, blind the, the, street the, blues guy. And also, he was sitting there and watching white boys like Stefan Grossman, who was massively influenced by him, clean up on the college circuit. Mm. You know, and it's, it's. I mean, he did play the college circuit. He, he was did. adopted by yeah. the folk scene in the sixties. So he he had a kind of second wind that an awful lot yeah. of blues performers didn't get. Nonetheless, yeah, I can absolutely understand that. Sort of being in New York in nineteen seventy one yeah. would have been a pretty hazardous, it, tough time to yes. experience. Yes. Well, they leave you standing crying in the land. 
April 72, Grateful Dead, Empire Pool, Wembley. Roy Carr. I wonder Carr. why you want to talk about this, Mark. Well, well, do you like the Grateful Dead? Like, just a little bit, Barney. Um, <laughs> just, just, just a little bit. And I saw them on that tour. I saw them at the Lyceum in May of 72. And it was one of the great shows I've ever seen in my life. Barney and I, we both loved the Live in Europe album that came, came, came out of that. Europe 72, I adore it. And that was where I came in. But I, didn't, I was too young to see yeah, them yeah. on that tour, but... I felt like I kind of experienced yep. that tour mm. vicariously through through that triple album. Absolutely. And then subsequently, because they recorded the whole tour of Europe, every single minute of that tour just about has been released. Yeah. And, and so, you've listened to it. Well, I have listened to large, large swathes of it. The one thing I discovered, slightly to my mortification, is that the night I saw the live scene was probably the worst of the four nights they did at the Lyceum. <laughs> but actually, but even so, it is, it is fantastic. And in a way, that was the, both the best and also, I would say, getting towards the end of The Grateful Dead as a creative force. I mean, they went on forever afterwards, right until mm. Gus Garcia mm. died in 95. Mm. But I'd say that their last decent studio album was like, a couple of years later, Mars Hotel. Mm-hmm. And the, oddly enough, the, the cleaner their sound system came, the less interesting they sounded. They lost the warmth that had driven them back in those days. And, and, and the music on Europe 72 is, is nothing if not warm. There's a, lo- there's a real warmth, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, I think it's my favourite. I know it's not probably your favourite. It's my favourite oh, period, it's, Dead. Because I loved American yeah. Beauty and I loved working yeah. with it. I mean, essentially, they kind of... They almost invented yeah. Americana R- in, R- that, R- in, that, R- in that period. Robert Hunt was fed up with that, that album because he reckoned those songs should have gone onto a studio-recorded album. Stuff like Jack Straw yeah. and so on and so forth, yeah, yeah. which were all debuted on... Debuted Some on of my favourite. I mean, Jack Straw, I just worship. Absolutely. And he thinks they should have been recorded properly. I actually... Had, I just think they work so well as a band live. I think the sound is, 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 is beautiful yeah, it's, on it's, that it's, 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 it's really fact, well recorded. Though they did overdub a lot of the vocals back in America. Leaving Texas for the day of July. Sun so hot, the clouds so low, the eagles fill the sky. I saw them two years later at Alexandra Palace with their huge wall of sound system. They were awful. Well, I saw that show too, and it was, I mean, as a sort of 15-year-old sort of neophyte right. deadhead, it was disappointing. Yeah. I managed to sort of escape from boarding school and get up to Ali Pali, and yeah, I was really underwhelmed. There's one know. great story about that tour, is that notorious criminal-slash-shagger of Princess Margaret, John Binden, Gangster, basically. Lovely guy. <laughs> Befriended the band, largely because he's uh, had the source of the best cocaine in London, yeah? And he walked off with all the gate receipts from the Ali Pali shows. The whole lot. He just walked off with all the money. Well, and, 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 and the dead just shrugged their shoulders and said, well, you know, easy come, hey, easy man. go. Hey, yeah. man. You well, know. I mean, he was a villain. He was and, a and he villain. later crops up in the Led Zeppelin story as one of Peter Grant's heavies. Yeah. Thoroughly, uh, thoroughly disreputable and I think probably psychopathic yes, individual yes, yeah. with an enormous tool. That's right, who apparently could balance the balance pint, pint glasses uh, on, beer on the end of his erect member. Yes. So we've really hit rock bottom. <laughs> <laughs> for, tone, for tone on this episode, that was it. Okay, moving <laughs> simply on. Well, the absence <laughs> of a guest. <laughs> you know, you've got to get something to keep, keep the listeners in interested. Fact, John Bindon's member is really the sort of unofficial special guest. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving swiftly on to Enemy 1973, again Roy Carr. This is gold dust, because there are not many of them. An interview with Graham Parsons. Oh. 
Um, Saint Graham. Some, who Barney and I just adore. I particularly adore his solo stuff, the stuff he did at the very end of his life, his last two albums. I really like the Buritos, but it's about... The certain, first album. Is... Yeah, first, and certain songs on the first one, Hot Burrito number one and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. But his two solo albums were his genuine reversion to actual genuine country type. They are, I wouldn't call them country rock records. They are country albums, mm-hmm. the last two. He discovered singing in a Washington nightclub, Emmy Lou Harris, mm. who had this perfect voice to match his. Mm. And it talks about it in this interview that he got the, basically Elvis Presley's band to back him on those albums, Ron Tart, yeah, James, James Burton. Burton. and Andy Hardin on piano. Yeah. I mean, it's a fantastic I, I mean, he says, he says here, I'd say I'm a contemporary country music artist with an electric rock and roll band. Well, I don't think he is on this, those records. He says, country music isn't bubblegum, and it isn't geared to sell like bubblegum. It's sincere in the same way as R&B and B.B. King. Which is interesting, because with the Buritos, he was investigating that area where soul music meets country music. Yeah, well, he does great version of Do Right Woman, Do Right Man. Yeah. So if you want to do I prefer the solo albums, yes. and, and um, I still play them, I still love them. Great, great songs, great covers, yeah. great feel, great vibe. But of course, they didn't sell very no. well, and, and it's he... only really after he died of a drug overdose in 73 in Joshua Tree that he sort of starts to become this kind of cult figure, yeah. and yeah. he really is sort of one of the architects now mm-hmm. of, of alternative country, or whatever the hell you want to call yeah. it. Influenced so many people. Influenced the Eagles, you know. I mean, well, you without know, Graham, without the, Graham, the LA country rock scene probably wouldn't have existed in the form that it yeah. had. Well, of course, he'd been in you know, the Birds' country albums, we are the radio. Radio. He was. He was well, such he an important that, part the, of that. The more I played with the Birds, the more I wished I could get them to do real country songs like "That's All It Took." Yes. Um, oh, we well, see. To me, that's all it took. That version of, I can't remember who wrote the song now, but it wasn't a Graham original. Yes. But it, I, to me, it's one of the greatest country records ever made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He talks about leaving the birds. He goes along with the sort of myth he himself created that he left because they were going to tour South Africa yeah. and he couldn't play segregated yeah. audiences. That he says that here. I was raised in the South by some wonderful black people, and what common sense I have, I owe to them, which is kind of slightly patronising to say. Uh, listen, man, I couldn't play before segregated audiences. That's something no person should ever do. Mm-hmm. And he says, I think the South African government are nothing but a bunch of skunks really behind the rest of the civilised world. One always felt that he was like taught how to say all this stuff by like Keith Richards or someone. Well, of course, you know, when he came to London with the birds in 68, they were due to go and play in South That's Africa. Right. That's and exactly Graham went off with Mick and Keith to Stonehenge to sort of trip for the night. And it, and it really was a kind of like Mick and Keith said, man, you know, you can't go to South Africa, man. So Graham went back to London and told Roger McGuinn and Chris Hillman that he wasn't going mm. to South Africa, which pissed them off no end. But that was the sort of context. We, we, we were talking last week mm. about this huge Scorsese, Rolling, Dylan Rolling Thunder. Do- it's a sort of docu-mock-you. Docu-mock-you <laughs> elements, um, isn't it? And heavily featured is Larry Sloman, who was writing up it up for Rolling Stone. Rats, uh, 4th of December, 75. And it's a good piece of 
very straightforward reporting. He starts from right the early days before the tour even started, where it was four o'clock on a brandy-soaked October Thursday morning in Greenwich Village. There's about 20 friends and associated hangers-on gathered in the shutter to the public other end to hear Bob Dylan and his friends pick a few tunes. This is basically when Bob was assembling the cast of characters who had become the Rolling Thunder Review. This extensive report then takes you through to the early gigs and so on and so forth. Good piece of straightforward writing. Yeah, I mean, it's a very funny element in the movie. Is they, I think we've gone past spoiler alert here. There's, there's this brilliant <laughs> character that they invent, who's this sort of supposedly the original director of a film that never came out, and he's a, he's a sort of German or Austrian guy. You know, we sort of swept up here called Stefan Van Dor. I'm not sure I even really understood that this is a mythical character. Yeah, he I, didn't I, exist. I, I was just watching. It was a conceit that Dylan and Scorsese came up okay. with, and at one point he sits there and he. He bad mouths Larry Sloman, you know, and says Ratso. That was Larry's nickname. He was the worst of the worst. And then, and then you hear Larry speaking. It's very, it's very amusing. But, but Larry, yeah, Larry was the guy. He was the Rolling yeah. Stone reporter who sort of embedded himself yeah. in this ramshackle yeah. travel. I heard the sound of the thunder that roared out a warning. Cream 1977. Robert Duncan goes up to what is in fact a, a cinema and just outside New York where Kiss are recording yet another Kiss album. And a typical Robert Duncan thing where he can't... He, Robert won't just write it up as a straightforward report, report and interview. He has to create this almost semi-mythologised first half where he is entering the mothership and all this sort of stuff. But, Sounds quite entertaining. Uh, but it is pretty good. And, and, and Paul Stanley, the guitar player, comes over as a complete twat. You know, <laughs> um, Kiss Alive is an album. I mean, you could give it to any somebody and say, this is rock and roll. That album is rock and roll. <laughs> well, you know, Paul, you know... Um, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's, it, 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 it's a highly entertaining piece. And um, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be publishing the second half of it, which is Robert Duncan's audience with Gene Simmons. One of the stranger facts... Just backtrack for two seconds, because it's a funny footnote. Stranger things in Rolling Thunder is Dylan talking about going with a young Sharon Stone yeah. to visit... Gene Simmons backstage. Sharon Stone, I believe, was dating Gene Simmons. It was the tongue. The tongue it was the tongue <laughs> that did it. And and so Dylan's there backstage at a Kiss show, and what? and sort of gets the idea for the face painting. Yeah, it was such an important part of Rolling Thunder because he looks at Gene Simmons and thinks, mm, "Yeah, this is this is interesting." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, you thought you assumed it was like kabuki. Yeah, yeah, but someone should, told, Gene Simmons. someone should have wow. told Bob that if you're going to put face paint in your face, have a shave first. Because <laughs> it, it really doesn't look too great. That's I've awful. seen some of the clips. Yeah. Looks- but as I'm saying that now, I'm wondering whether, in fact, that is completely sort of false. And in fact, possibly they just in- invented that I whole story. No about idea. Sharon Stone and Gene Simmons. Sounds 1979. This is interesting. It's a very early sort of write up of U2. Dave McCulloch. Again, talking about Gogo, is this searching for scenes, and he goes to Dublin to search for this putative Irish rock, rock scene. scene. Mm-hmm. Bands like the Virgin Prunes and all that. He's picked up in an Austin A40 by Bono at the airport. And, uh, <laughs> Bono drives that anyway. Uh, Dave McCulloch completely buys into U2, as did so many people at the time. The, the, they the, were the saviours of rock, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, until... Until, until they weren't. Until they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, moving hugely on. 1997. Barbara Allen and the Observer basically spends an evening in the company of Peter Andre. The, the, now we're the, getting the, to the real heart of rock the, and the, roll. The six-pack stomached Australian heartthrob of reality TV. And she, of course, being Barbara Allen, just the most fabulously mocking writer. Andre is very slight, even with his legs and arms flung out as wide as they can go, and wearing a jacket that a small child could use as a Wendy house. He only takes up half an inch of space. Andre is so titchy that I keep worrying he might slip down the back of the seat like loose change. Then I have to fish him out by his trademark sticky-up fringe, which usually resembles an octopus doing the can-can, but today looks very limp and jet-lagged. <laughs> I'm moving swiftly on. Just as I'm leaving, Andre makes a point of poking me in the arm. You know, he grins, he grins through gritted teeth, still obviously stung by my bland and boring inquiry. I bet I have a lot more fun than most people. A five at Labrooks says he doesn't. Fast forward to Ooh. today in The Guardian. Ooh. Simon Hudson interviewing Peter Andre, and literally months after that Barbara Ellen report took place, he had a complete breakdown. So wow. he wasn't having a lot more fun than most people. No. no. Um, and and he, he actually kind of he disappeared off the face of the planet for about two years. Had massive anxiety attacks, Gosh, therapy, mm. blah, blah, blah. Which is, you know, but it's interesting that, that Barbara Ellen kind of, mm. kind of spotted that. Clocked on that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's my lot. That's your lot. Thank you. Well, just a couple of things, really. Given the massive Radiohead hack and leak last week... <laughs> What's that sound, Justin? I think it's... Mark. It's not a, a helicopter outside the window. Oh, no. Mark, Mark, Mark not want to listen to 18 hours of okay. Radiohead. Right, well, we'll force them to do that later. But this is so, we've added a review of Hail to the Thief from 2003. And there's a little Q&A with um, Thomas York, uh, Mark's hero, where he just... Rem- Stephen Dalton, the reviewer, asks him about OK Computer... And he says, OK Computer was everyone else's property. Everyone else had invested a lot of energy in it, which started off being really positive and then just got really weird. That's what happens when a band goes ballistic like that. You just come out at the end of it going, what was that about? And I suspect that must have been the case for Radiohead because OK Computer just sort of blew them stratospheric. And and in a way... Tom York never really recovered from that. But I think Hail to the Thief is a, is a great album. It's not one of the albums I've listened to no. that much, I have to say. It's well, I'm going to stick my neck out, so I think it's a really great record. Um, so there we go. And then finally, um, just because, I happen to be just perusing this this morning, an interview with Baxter Jury, son of the late Ian Jury. I've seen him. He's You've seen good. Yeah. He's good, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, he's a really interesting guy. Grew up in a very interesting household. And he reminisces in this piece. A new writer that's come on board, Jamie Atkins of Record Collector. He talks quite a lot in this piece, does Baxter, about his dad and about the blockheads. And, and I just picked out a couple of quotes. All the dudes that were in our dad's band didn't really know the difference between punk and funk. They just played. And he says, Dad was punk because he couldn't sing and he was into words and, like, dressing up offensively. But actually, all they were into was Funkadelic, Sly and the Family Stone and Miles Davis yeah, and all yeah. that stuff. Well, Chaz Jankel was a, a, an avid jazz funk man, you know. He was a jazz, it's, it's jazz funketeer. It was an interesting band because mm. you had Norman Watroy, Charlie Charles on drums. Great players. Uh, and they were all essentially kind of black R&B sort of bass, yeah. bass players. And then you had Endure up front. 
Yes. And, and yes. sort of, it worked. It just worked, it just didn't worked. it? Against all the odds. For a couple of albums, you know. It, it, and Mark, you'll like to say, this is what we'll end on, you will enjoy the fact that Baxter had just recorded his Prince of Tears album at the church studios ah. in Crouch End. <laughs> um, That's gone. Is there, is, well, I don't know if it has. it gone now? Yeah, it has yeah, gone yeah, now. yeah, it's gone. Well, so apparently it, just, it used to be owned by Dave Stewart, and that was how we ended up there, because Dave, yeah. Dave was an hmm. early advocate of Rock's Back Pages and a friend to us. Dave gave us a great deal on that. It's a beautiful building. The players were amazing, and they were loving it, because you've got this swearing loony coming out of the speakers. I, I don't know if it's referring to... Dad, the swearing loony, or himself, I think the maybe swearing himself, loony. possibly. Is he also a he's, he's pretty interesting on record? He does yeah. a kind of spoken word vocal performance on a lot of his tracks, and it's quite dark. I'm a turgid, fucked up little goat pissing on your fucking hill. I'm Miami. This is your time to shine, of course, because you are now going to tell us about one of your favourite bands. One of my favourite bands, particularly as a live experience, I found this piece because I went to see... I mean, this is a live review of Foles. Not the Foles. Just Foles. Just Foles, yeah. Actually, no definite article there. No yeah. definite article there. And their, their support act, last when I just saw them, kept referring to them as the Foles. Oh, it was pretty disastrous, please. and it was a pretty disastrous support act as well. But anyway, that's beside the point. This is a live review of Foles at Ali Pali in 2014 by Ian Gittins in The Guardian. And he says, This once spindly, precocious art rock band who appeared destined to be no more than the perennial soundtrack to student discos everywhere have transformed into a vital, vivacious and thrillingly spontaneous pop group capable of holding arenas in the palms of their hands. Where once Foles' oblique math rock and angular arabesques merely felt arch and clever clever, now brooding yet winning tracks like Inhaler and Providence boast choruses that hit like avalanches and have the entire hall bellowing along. I'll mm. take your word for it. Mm. They are really one of the best bands I've seen live. Oddly, it took seeing them live for me to really start loving their recorded output as well. I mean, that's an experience I think that a few people I've spoken to had where they liked them enough yeah. on you know the studio stuff and then went to see them and like, Wow, these guys! Well, are that, really, I find really that very encouraging because it's not often that you see bands live doing anything different than they do on record for a start. That uh, they tend to, to replicate the experience as closely as possible, and to have someone actually do something which is different enough to make you then go back and reassess the yeah. recorded stuff—that's really good. And it, interestingly, although Ian Gittins says that where once the oblique math rock and angular arabesque sort of met, like he kind of dismisses that as being soundtrack to student mm-hmm. discos, they still do that stuff live, mm-hmm. and it's among the best stuff they do. They have the encore is usually a song called Two Steps Twice, which is from their first album and it just turns into this very long breakdown and everyone just loses it and it's it, the crowd really love it it's a really nice crowd as well because it's a rock crowd and people are moshing and everything but it's not violent it's not unpleasant it's pretty high spirited am i right in saying you went to see them on saturday yeah, night yeah i went to see them on saturday night yeah which is why i found this piece and i saw them in birmingham actually because they're doing a tour at the moment where they will be at Ali Pali as well, but that's when I'm going to be in DC. So we figured we'd go see them in Birmingham at the Digbeth Arena, which <laughs> classy, yeah. Um, <laughs> but actually, it's a pretty cool venue. It's sort of like outdoor space, three thousand five hundred uh-huh. people. So it's a bit smaller than Ali Pali, which is nice as yeah. well. It's, I always prefer slightly, and it felt managed to feel quite intimate. I think it was we were in a pretty perfect spot, relatively close to the stage, right in the mosh pit. My favourite. It was great. Good stuff. Did you get so, hurt, Jasper? No, not really. 
No. So, 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 massive bruise on my elbow. So, so, this is Jasper performing this function of listening to music so we don't have to. That's why we employed him. I like the false track stuff you've played. Yeah. I love that song, My Number. Did they play My Number? They played My Number. They, they, the set list was fantastic. They played, they've, they've released five studio albums now, and they played stuff from every single album, and it really felt like they weren't just doing the new stuff because they have to. They really do like the people. One sort of funny thing about, because I was in Birmingham during the day beforehand, we were just walking around exploring the delights that Birmingham has to offer. And we happened to walk past Birmingham Arena as opposed to Digbeth Arena, and there was a gig there as well. And we were trying to guess who was playing based on the crowd of people that had lined up. I thought it might be, a, I didn't guess which, but I thought it might be a boy band of some kind. And my friend Lawrence thought it might be the Spice Girls, because obviously they've been doing right. that. We looked it up, and it was, in fact, the Backstreet Boys. Yes. So, there I'm you go. it wasn't Peter Andre. That would have been, <laughs> <laughs> been a real perfect <laughs> Backstreet's back, all right. Excellent. Good stuff. You're whizzing off to Washington, D.C. tomorrow. Day after. Day after. Mm. Have a fantastic time. Yeah. Yeah, this episode will come out when I'm there. Well, yes. (laughs) When I love, do you mean like cream pie or... When I was in Washington a few years ago, we were walking down towards the White House and suddenly this massive, like, police sort of cavalcade thing... Obama went past in the presidential limousine. Maybe you'll have a similar experience. <laughs> similar, but also extremely different in some, yes. in some vital Slightly regard that I just different. can't quite put my finger well, on. We obviously hope you have a good time there Thank and are able to see some of the sites. So, yeah, have a great time, Jasper. Bring that back lots and lots of new subscriptions and money to the business. <laughs> what do you mean it's not why you're going there for? And uh, we'll play out with the wonderful Anita Ward talking about just the shock of what it is to have this overnight sensation hit. It's a gold record, Anita. Bye. Bye. Hurrah. It was up on his suggestion. He said, well, why don't you substitute teach? He said, because if in case something happens with the record, that would allow you flexibility. Right with your schedule to mm-hmm. get out of, of subbing in case you got to go on behalf of this record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, he was absolutely right because I got to sub about four months, okay? Mm-hmm. And he called me on a Thursday, okay? And he said, I got great news for you. And I said, well, what is it? He said, your record has gone gold after two weeks. Okay, and they want you to do a show in California for Wolfman Jack. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the, what was that show called? The Midnight Special. Yeah. Uh-huh. He says they want you to do the Midnight Special, and uh, so I said, "Well, that's great, Steve." I mean, uh, I said, "Chuck," I said, "But um, I got to teach class tomorrow." That's the way I was. I, I have to give Two weeks, that. though. Two weeks. And, and, and you didn't even know anything was percolating like that. Well, we surface. just didn't know. I mean, you... 
we didn't know. And um, I said, wow, it's gone, go. He said, yep, and people want you. So sure enough, they sent in a choreographer from New York. That was on a Thursday. They had two dancers and background singers. And this guy got the parts of my body I didn't know I had. <laughs> no, we did. I'm serious. Because <laughs> I never was a dancer anyway. And I said, oh, my God, is this ever going to, you know. And uh, we were getting ready to do that show. That was on a Friday and Saturday. That Monday, we went and shopped for wardrobe in Memphis. Okay. Okay? Because that's how quick in Memphis we shopped for wardrobe. And Tuesday morning, I was doing the show. That was Anita Ward in conversation with Tom Graves in 2016, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Cut this bit out, Jasper.